You're listening to an Empavillion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at empavillion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. I'll just start a session with the acknowledgement of the people of the Eastern Kulin Nation as the land we are speaking on and meeting today. We pay our respect to their land, their ancestors and their elders, past, present and to the future. We'd also like to pay our respect to traditional custodians across country. As I'm Fiona and I'm a landscape architect and also an international resident. So for me, curating this conversation is really a, a way for me to connect with this Asian land I'm working and living on today. And I'd also like to recognize that it is um, an extension from my thesis research last year, which I had a lot of support from community members from MIT, especially Alice and Emily here who supervised my project last year. And I had tremendous help from my greatest dearest partner, Gary, who has been my great collaborator and mentor support. <laughs> and I'd also like to thank Jen, who's here somewhere to give me this chance to, as a young fellow to be in the community to be able to speak and curate this thing. And also a thanks to Rush Rai who has been providing me flexible working hours for last year to allow me to survive through thesis and to allow me to curate this thing. And without further ado, I'll just start with um, some questions and curiosities I always get when it comes to the question of concrete and why are we talking about afterlife of concrete right now. So as many of know, you might already know, concrete is the second largest resource we're using on the planet. And in Victoria, it's also the most significant contributor to construction and demolition waste. However, most of the concrete that's actually diverted from landfill, which is about 40%, are actually only being downcycled, which means it's mostly being crushed and then cleaned and used as the road base for like a backfill. So we really don't really repurpose or reuse concrete at all, basically. So that's kind of the backstory of why this project exists and why it's important as we mostly... Uh, designers, architects or interior designers should be re-engaged with the afterlife of concrete a bit more as we are mainly the consumers. And I'd like to introduce Emily, who is going to be moderating our event tonight. Emily is the editor of Landscape Architecture Australia magazine. She teaches in the Landscape Architecture program at RMIT University and has taught at Deakin University and the Melbourne School of Design. Her writing has appeared in art, architecture and design publications, including Landscape Architecture Australia, Antichoke, Architecture Australia, Houses, Assemble Papers and Juxtapose. Her PhD research explores curatorial strategies for designing an era of ecological collapse. And I'll hand over to Emily. Um, thanks very much for the introduction, um, Fiona. Um, it's my pleasure to introduce the speakers for this evening. Um, to my right, I've got Millie Catlin, um, who's co-director of These Are The Projects We Do Together. Um, and that's a practice that works with um, many site-based projects, including testing grounds, site works and the quarry. Um, and the work of the practice is really unique in its approaches to public space, creative infrastructures and site-based programming. These are the projects we do together has earned a reputation for working predominantly with programmatic sites through architecture, design, embedded education, maintenance, caretaking, 
operations, creative program and open access. The team seeks to reposition these sites as crucial, creative and socially inclusive spaces and communities. Um, and on top of all that, Millie is also doing a practice-based PhD in the School of Architecture and Urban Design at RMIT, titled This Place is Alive, Provisional Creative Infrastructures. Um, next up we've got um, Shahar Cohen. Um, Shahar Cohen is the co-founder of Second Edition, a Sydney-based spatial practice that explores deconstruction and reuse within the built environment. Um, and they advocate for practical, local and feasible techniques for waste minimisation that have real-world applications. They're also advocates for deconstruction as a feasible alternative to demolition and are continually exploring new ways of working with materials and objects that would otherwise end up in landfill. Their work develops methods to systematically take apart and process local materials to enable them to be reintegrated into the design and construction process. Um, and to the far right, um, we've got Kate McCracken. Um, Kate is a landscape architect, uh, designer and project manager at SBLA Studio. Um, currently leading and is involved in a number of projects that aim to repurpose existing materials on site. SBLA Studio works to chip away at the business as usual approach within the construction industry to make room for testing and experimentation. And Kate's work at SBLA covers a broad range of project types including master planning, infrastructure play, social housing and installation, and explores the ebb and flow between big picture strategies and getting into the nitty gritty of how stuff really works. Um, so thanks very much for joining us as the speakers um, and guests in this discussion today. Um, so I think a good way to kind of kick off the conversation um, is to begin. So I think we've got 40, 40, 45 minutes of discussion, Fiona, and then followed by a 10 to 15 minute um, sort of open floor. So um, that would be the time when um, you guys as the audience um, can ask questions and also offer your perspectives on some of the discussion that might arise today. Um, so it'd be great if you had any questions um, that came up during um, our talk with the speakers, if you could hold those um, close to you and, and, and kind of pose those at the end. Um, that would be amazing and I think really valuable um, as contributions to this conversation. Um, so I think perhaps a, a good way to kind of begin would to, uh, be to inquire um, of you guys, how is it that your practices came about and what is it, um, for instance, that your motivations were um, and how did you become interested in, I suppose, the topics of, of um, reuse and recycling, um, but also um, if you have a, a particular interest in concrete as well. And I might start that off with um, Shahar. Um, sure. So... Um I'm co-founder of Second Edition and we started Second Edition, um, my business partner Amy and myself, it was actually a research thesis at um, UTS in Sydney. Um, and we were both really interested in waste because basically Amy comes from a residential background and I come from a commercial background and we were both kind of seeing the impacts of us designing and the waste that we were creating by no, you know, real intention of our own, just by the way things were done. And we wanted to try do something a little bit differently. So basically we started with saying, we want to build something entirely out of waste. And what does that entail? Like, where do we, and we started with a kitchen predominantly because if you want to build something out of waste, it has to be a functional object that has somewhere to go at the end, not something that's just going to sit there and collect dust. Um, and Amy needed a kitchen. So <laughs> we built a kitchen um, and it was a massive experience in unlearning everything that we had been taught in both practice, not so much in uni, but mostly in practice of procurement, of the process of design, of everything. We pretty much started out by going to a bunch of fabricators and saying, what do you have? and going to a bunch of construction and demolition sites and seeing what comes out of it and just collecting. And then from that process of collecting, we started to design rather than how we were um, trained in the past to start with the design and then figure out what materials to design with and where to get them from. And that was just a check. That came out of a research master's thesis that you were doing, you and Amy were doing at um, university last year or the year before? Seems so long ago now. <laughs> Last year. Yeah. The year before. Sorry, we're in 2023. The year before. <laughs> yeah, came out of a research thesis a year and a half ago now. Yeah. Amazing. Um, uh, how about um, you, Millie? 
Thank you. Um, yeah, it's good to be here and good to see lots of familiar faces in the, in the crowd. Uh, so I'm an architect, but I guess my practice has been very much about avoiding architecture in a conventional sense. And I think if I reflect on that in the context of this conversation, that is very much about me having real issue with the kind of the, the conventions of a practice that produces so much waste and puts so much time pressure on a design process. So about 10, 12 years ago, I'm also losing track of time, um, I started a practice with my partner and it's since then become a family practice, so I very well probably will be interrupted by small humans. Um, but we started a practice which was uh, looking, I guess, at public space and ways of working with public space in, in ways that, um, I guess, thought about public space as a place that should give the public agency. Uh, that then culminated in us running a site just that way a little bit called Testing Grounds, which has just had its 10th 10-year anniversary, which is a bit terrifying as well. But that was very much about seeing an empty site in the arts precinct as having more value than others could see at the time with that. And I guess just in, in the kind of, you know, I guess tangentially to this uh, topic, but kind of related, is the way in which we originally got access to that site was through a maintenance budget. So this was post-GFC where there was an appetite for pop-up and an appetite for kind of, I guess, a, a, a DIY aesthetic. And we kind of piggybacked on that a little bit, but it was very much through a caretaker's budget with state government that we were able to get access to that site. So we weren't, we weren't operating it as architects or arts managers or artists, we were operating it as caretakers. And then following on that, um, we then redesigned that site three years later, which was very much about uh, designing a, 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 an infrastructure that could move, knowing that our time there would be short. Uh, and following on from that, what should, should I stop? Maybe I'll stop. I'll stop. I'll talk about Simon. <laughs> Thanks, Millie. I think we can sort of draw maybe some more stuff out of it as we, as we go. Um, Kate, um, if I could pass the question to you. Hi. Uh, thanks. <clears throat> thanks for having me. I could listen to Millie forever. So, um, so uh, I'm a landscape architect. I work at a small studio in Melbourne called SBLA. Um, if you don't know it, we or are not familiar with landscape architecture, we um, work in sort of small to medium scale public spaces. Um, I would say that we probably work in a more sort of standard practice format than either of you two, particularly in um, we don't have a sort of special approach to materials or material reuse. I think that um, landscape architecture as a practice that deals in public space, um, you're often, there's sort of very many, many uh, conflicting at times sort of things that you're trying to achieve for the people um, for the environment and sort of for the broader systems that are going to be impacted by that space. Um, and materiali materiality is often one facet of it. I think um, more and more we're trying to, I guess the broader SBLA approach and mine as well is uh, kind of a, a lighter touch perhaps. Um, sometimes constructing a whole new thing doesn't always feel like the best outcome. Uh, so I think within that sort of naturally started to become this question of what's there? Why are we replacing it? If it does need to be replaced, um, can we use what's already there? And so I guess that's a sort of coming about of um, using existing materials. Um, yeah. Thanks, Kate. <laughs> so I think, um, you know, it'd be really interesting to hear um, a, a few more sort of 
examples of the kinds of projects that you're working, maybe to ground some of these ideas. Um, so in a sense, I sort of see, um, Kate, your practice within SBLA as, as looking at materials on site and how is it that you kind of reuse materials, including concrete on site. Um, Shahar, um, your second edition practice looks at, um, you know, sort of cataloguing um, a broad range of materials and exploring how each of those materials might be reused in, in particular ways. And I think, Millie, um, your practice through these pro other projects we do together looks at a kind of um, materials as, as flows, as sort of their relationship to broader systems and flows. Um, so I think um, I think it'd be great um, perhaps if Shahar, you talked through, I think you had a couple of projects that were looking at concrete in particular. Um, would you like to talk through some of those? Yeah, sure. So it's actually, they've all come about super recently, um, coincidentally with this talk, which is convenient. <laughs> um, but I guess before that, we were kind of of the approach to avoid concrete at all costs because it's just super difficult to reuse. Um, anytime, you know, there's any sort of structural concrete that has steel running through it or anything, trying to cut it down, you start to expose the Rio and exposing the Rio, it starts to get all sorts of issues. So having, um, having gone from that approach to sort of getting invited to do this talk and thinking how can we actually start to <laughs> reuse concrete or think about ways in which um, it minimizes, you know, the waste that it produces or minimizes its impact. Um, we've got a, a few projects at the moment. So one of them, um, we pretty much had a, a demolition site which we were trying to extract as much material out of as possible. Um, it was a super sort of, I, I wanna say like, 90s construction, meaning that everything was screeded in and impossible to um, <laughs> deconstruct, which made it difficult. But they did have a bunch of topping slabs everywhere. And we were really interested in seeing how we can start to work with the demo company because basically the way that they extract topping slabs, if it's an alternads, is they have to cut it up anyway. Um, so they take a demo saw, cut a bunch of strips and cut about a bunch of strips in the other direction and you're pretty much left with like 600 by 600 pavers, which to us was really cool because it's like a standard, a standard material that, that you can then re-specify. So um, that's one of the projects that we're looking at at the moment. We've only saved a bunch of them, which we're gonna actually try to use for bits of furniture rather than paving because we don't have a project for paving at the moment, but if we did, we could use it as paving as well. Um, and the other, the other project that we're looking at at the moment is something that Five, Mi Five Mile Radius has been doing for a long time. So um, basically when you do a concrete pour, um, there's always, I think they call it pump dump, which is left over. It's, it's the stuff that's left over in the pump after the concrete truck is gone. Um, and it's usually like 0.2 of a cube. And what they do is they dump it on the floor and divide it up into manageable sizes um, and then put it all in the skip after. But it's perfectly good concrete. So we've been sort of playing with different types of molds that we take to sites. And whenever there's a concrete pour coming up, we just leave the molds on site and say, just put it in here instead. And often um, builders are more than happy to do it because it's quite annoying for them to have to have a whole bunch of bits of slop lying there for them to pick up once it dries up. So that's the, yeah, trying to play with concrete in two different ways there. What kind of, um, I'm interested in what sort of shapes of moulds and things um, you've got. <laughs> um, we started really basic with just like what happens if we put it into cubes because cubes are so versatile. They could be used as building blocks, they could be used as furniture legs, they can be used so many different things. Um, and that's what was appealing to us, that the mould didn't, restrain its final use or constrain its final use um, and then we started looking at different textures as well like what happens if you vibrate it and don't vibrate it and then um, now we're also looking at what happens if you start to cast it into other things that get thrown off sites so um, like cans and buckets and that sort of thing <laughs> putting waste inside waste <laughs> I think that's that's pretty pretty interesting. I think it'd be great to see some images of that at some point. Um, Kate, um, it'd be great if you could talk through perhaps um, some projects that SBLA have um, worked on. I think Richmond High School was one of them recently. Uh, yeah. 
So we've just completed, actually, just, just there today, uh, um, just a small sort of courtyard upgrade for Richmond High School, which I think is maybe one of the reasons I was invited here. Um, so that project, just as a bit of a context, uh, it's a pretty new school. I think it was completed in 2018. Um, they don't have, it's like a vertical school. They don't have a lot of um, outdoor space. And um, unfortunately, through the construction process, um, they had like a great landscape architect on board who did a really nice design. But then of course, budget came along and the first thing to go is always landscape. Uh, so they basically ended up with a big concrete uh, pad and a few um, garden beds. Um, so when we came in, there's kind of, even though most of what was there was just planting and concrete, we were kind of like, this is only a few years old and all this concrete is going to go to waste. So part of the, um, through the design process and uh, thinking about sort of, there are all the other um, design and sort of concepts coming in, one of the sort of key things that we were trying to focus on is how can we reuse this material. Um, and we ended up, it ended up being sort of, not, I think what was interesting about that process is that how we ended up using the concrete was not quite how we had imagined it. And I think we were going in pretty green, not knowing nearly as much as you do uh, about sort of construction and demolition, um, deconstruction, I should say. Uh, so, but it was a really great process because um, one of the reasons that I think that that project ended up being quite successful is because we were the lead consultant, so we had good control over the site. We had a really good relationship with the builder, so we were able to go to site, have brainstorming sessions about what was happening. This is, was originally in the drawing, but um, it's not working as well or maybe, you know, this would be a better process for us in terms of how we do things and we could come up with this outcome. So, uh, even though the core sort of design was the same, um, we had some good sort of feedback sessions, I guess, with the contractor, which you don't always get on a, a larger scale project or just a project where you maybe don't have such a sort of good pre-existing relationship with them. Um, but, yes. <laughs> Thanks, Kate. I was wondering, um, perhaps, Millie, if... Um, so, Kate sort of spoken a little bit about this idea of um, having a relationship with with builders and, you know, between the relationship with design, designers and builders and how that's been quite important in SPLA's project and in particular in relation to the Richmond High School project um, as being kind of quite pivotal to be able to, as, you know, part of the process of being able to reuse that material effectively. Um, I was wondering if you would be able to uh, perhaps talk to that idea of relationships through your um, practice and I think, um, as I was saying earlier, Shahar's practice, second edition, is about looking at, you know, particular materials and how they can be used um, and I think perhaps by contrast or by... Um, comparison, your practice, I think, is sort of looking at whole architectural structures and whole buildings and how parts of those might be reused um, uh, through, you know, different systems and flows. Um, so, yeah, it'd be great if you could talk a bit about that idea of relationships um, and how that works in, in relation to your stuff. Yeah, sure. I think systems and flows is a really nice way to think about it. Something that comes up for us a lot in our practice and through our projects is this idea of feedback. So, use informing design and I guess in, in many contexts and things we're all very familiar with is a community consultation process. And I guess something we talk about within our practices or within our projects, uh, and the three I guess that I'm referring to tonight, uh, is that our community engagement or our community consult consultation goes on for years. So uh, as I was mentioning before with testing grounds, we were there for two years before actually designing something uh, to go there to support an arts um, community. 
Similarly, at SiteWorks, which is an old school that we've been operating as a community space in Brunswick, uh, we've been there for five years in pretty much, like, as I said, an old school. It was um, considered uninhabitable when we first arrived there and through some kind of um, nuances in the building code, we were able to get access to that, uh, those buildings and operate them. And that use, that, that five years of use and our close observation of that use has kind of come back and fed into the, the design of a, 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 I guess it's hard, the word permanent's weird, but, you know, a 50-year a, a building uh, that's being designed by Kennedy Nolan and with um, landscape by Openwork on that site. So I guess there's this idea of feedback and I guess it's nice to think about it like a flow of... Um, I guess it's kind of about revaluing, revaluing sites, revaluing the, the building stock on those sites. Seeing, and, I, and in your intro, you sort of mentioned with, within the context of my work, this idea of a problematic site. I guess everything we're trying to do is reframe those problems as opportunities. And I guess that then uh, leads to the third project that we're running. And we very much call them projects because we are trying to prevent these projects from becoming institutionalised and becoming organisations in their own right. We think there's something interesting about re retaining them as projects, even though they might go on for 10 years. So the third project is a, is a quarry that we're rehabilitating. And there's, uh, once again, this idea of revaluing material, although it's not concrete, there, ha there was a revaluing economically of the material that that quarry was uh, quarrying, and which meant that that, that site suddenly, or you know, progressively um, had very little value in a conventional sense. So we've been re rehabilitating that slowly, very intentionally slowly, and kind of questioning the, those expedited processes that happen in, in construction of fixing a problem and moving on. So that, uh, that quarry is in the Otways, it's over 100 years old, the material is no longer of economic value, but we, I guess, are saying that this site, the provocations within this site have immense value both um, culturally, creatively, materially, in many different ways. Um, yeah. Did we go on and talk about the pavilion? Oh, no. Yeah. I guess we, we've just been camping together. It was great. Uh, and there's a few people here that were with us. So we ran some camps at the quarry over the past two weeks. And once again, I guess this idea of feedback and flow of, of material and design is, is, is critical here because... We need to design infrastructure for this quarry in order for people to come and for, uh, in order for us to spend time there. And over the years, being in the arts precinct, we'd sort of formed these loose relationships with um, the NGV where we are repurposing their pavilions, their architecture pavilions. So we've got the material um, remnants of those pavilions from the past five years. And we are, I guess, using them to test ideas about how to design infrastructure for the quarry in a more permanent um, sense. So, yeah, the, the camping infrastructure that we were all um, accommodated within or around was, was a, a, a recycling or a, a re-diverting from landfill, if we're going to be really honest, uh, uh, materials from architect temporary architecture, essentially. Yeah, and it's interesting, and I think it's really interesting to hear you guys both talk about this, but the way in which things go together, never consider the way in which they in, are going to come apart in 20, 30 years, and, or in the sake of the pavilions, kind of at 12 months. But it's a shame, and it would be something, I think, that, you know, if, if design and budgets permitted, it would be a really essential thing to start thinking about how buildings come apart. I think I might come back to that issue of, um, you know, how it is that we think about um, how buildings and landscapes come apart before you design them or as we design them. Um, but in the meantime, I wanted to address this idea that I think both um, Kate and Millie have touched on a little bit, which is this idea, I suppose, of um, uncertainty in the unknown. And I think, um, you know, this idea of concrete um, and reusing materials, including concrete, is that um, you don't know... Um, exactly what the result's going to be because you don't know what kind of product you're dealing with. Um, so I wonder um, if perhaps, Shahar, um, you could talk to that idea of uncertainty and risk and experimentation um, in your practice and how is it that you engage with that um, in relation to relationships with clients or um, even some of the fabricators? Um, how does that fit in? Yeah, I, I mean, 
reuse is riddled with uncertainty. Like <laughs> every single material that we decide, hey, let's try experiment with this one, there's not issues, but things that you didn't expect at every stage. When you take it apart, when you try to transport it, when you try to refinish it, it's, it's always different every time. Like, for example, even timber, right? You think that re recycling timber is a really simple thing because everybody, or like there are a lot of fabricators out there that can just like refinish a piece of timber, um, denail it, simple. But then some timbers, when you take them out and you try to use them again, are way more sappy because they've been sitting in a house for a hundred years and they haven't been seasoned like your standard timbers. So it, every time it's an experiment. And I think that communicating that to um, the client from the very beginning is super important and making sure that you have client buy-in um, so that um, they're, they're aware, I guess, that it's coming because it's, yeah, near impossible to sort of mitigate <laughs> all the risk. Um, and I think that for our projects, the way that we've tried to approach it lately is um, because there's slowly the projects are getting bigger and bigger. Um, the smaller the project is, the easier it is to sort of um, limit the uncertainty because you can um, say, you know, we're only going to use this particular material or that particular material, and then the bigger they get, the bigger the uncertainty gets as well. Um, so I, at the moment, we're trying to just, like, go really extreme in particular things and then go more light reuse on other things. If it, just because, yeah, as, as designers, you sort of have to mitigate the risk. Otherwise, none of the projects will, will go through. And um, I guess it's, it's been working pretty well for us because some things work and some things don't work. But the things that work, you take that on and you put that into the next project so that maybe eventually you can start to really scale reuse. Um, I might put this next question out to, to all three of you and whoever wants to respond, um, that'll be great. Um, I'm really interested to know about, you know, what kind, you need buy-in from clients in order to get these kind of things off the ground. I'm really curious to know what kinds of clients are the most amenable to this idea of experimentation and reuse, knowing that the result may or may not work out the way that they thought or it may or may not go over budget according to what you kind of end up dealing with. Um, maybe even um, Kate, if that one sort of speaks to you. Sure. Um, what kind of clients? <laughs> well, just to bring it back to Richmond High School, those clients were, I guess, because they're running a school and the school itself had um, the, the values that sort of supported it. That was really good. Um, and... I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing, but I guess they're unexperienced in the development industry, so they kind of just took our word for things. Um, but I guess that, that, could, that can go either way or come back to bite you, I suppose. Um, thinking about other clients are probably... I would say ones that value landscape and value our sort of point of view and input to the project, um, which is not everyone. Um, so I think if, if, if we're in a position where we're trying to push um, something that's a bit different or a bit unusual or is going to require experimentation, uh, definitely just general valuing of landscape architecture and what that's going to bring to the project beyond just kind of like a green beautification at the end. What would you consider to be, oh, sure. Oh, no, I was just going to agree with that. I think um, developers are extremely risk-averse and getting any sort of reuse from a, from a developer has been quite difficult. Um, but as soon as the client has um, an inherent interest in what you're doing, it just makes it so much easier. And, like, that would also go into, I think, the residential space because it's someone's home and there, there are stories associated with the materials and um, something that they can relate to when they're actually living in it. It's, it's been, yeah, quite interesting working with people in the, in the residential space as well. Um, so on that topic, how do you think... Um, is there, you know, a particular way of communicating 
those values to clients or to builders or to other people that are involved in the design and construction process that would um, help to push that agenda, that agenda of reuse um, and that these um, you know, materials like concrete do have a value that beyond their normal life cycle. Do you think there's a particular way of communicating or um, approaching that with someone that could be helpful in that respect? Um, I wouldn't, I, I don't think I, no, <laughs> I don't have an answer. Uh, I think you really have to feel, feel it out, feel out who you're talking to and what, what, what seems to spark their interest um, and what they value. Um, yeah. Oftentimes we will have a project where we, we have the um, sort of key drivers for the project that we're selling to the client. This is, what, this is what's important to the project and then we sort of have the secret ones that are important to us that uh, sort of fly under the radar. Unfortunately, I think material reuse is one of the more difficult ones to fly under the radar. Um, yeah. I don't have an answer. <laughs> um, I was going to ask, you know, what do you think, um, I guess coming back to some of the, the points I think that you've all touched on, would you name as the, the kind of main barriers to concrete reuse? Um, Shahai, you mentioned that, you, you know, as a practice, you kind of tended to avoid concrete until fairly recently. Um, Perhaps you could explain why, um, specifically, concrete is difficult to reuse. Yeah, I think it's um, very very similar to what Fiona was talking about in the beginning. So, like, um, with the way, with the demolition sites that I've been to and the way that concrete's typically constructed, um, because it's not modular in any sense, um, and it's very much just, like, poured in one massive slab and in order to get it out you need to start jackhammering or saw cutting or whatever it is um it just means that it kind of goes back to to what you were talking about earlier about value it just becomes like the item of lowest value that's coming out because it's heavy so it's expensive to tip um it can't get reused on site because it's, it's crushed but not crushed enough that it's aggregate or drainage and and then um yeah you it kind of just needs to be sent off and processed because the process of crushing it is so um i guess labor intensive um which makes it very difficult to crush on site although there are some crushes you can now get to recycle um, concrete on site which is pretty cool um but yeah i think it just it just means that it's um it's kind of broken down into aggregate and then recycled once it used as road base um, or in landscapes and then kind of degrades the quality of the thing that it's getting recycled into. So, yeah, not very circular in that sense. So it seems like there are you know, definitely some quite clear barriers to concrete reuse, um, deconstruction and reuse. And I was wondering, um, if perhaps you could talk through, you know, what would be the ideal scenario? What is it that we need to do in order to, for buildings and landscapes to be effectively deconstructed and reused? And I think um, when we, we sort of spoke last, you had a bit of a list um, with Amy um, that you were talking about a series of steps. Oh, my gosh, let me try to remember them. <laughs> um, well, definitely, definitely what we've been speaking about, about having client buy-in and having um, the buy-in of the builder, because without those, you can come to them with a whole bunch of great ideas and everyone's going to be like, sweet, sounds good, and not do them. Um, and bas basically what we were, I guess, talking about was trying to figure out ways in which um, to use... There's a concept called shearing layers, which is essentially you build the structure and you build the structure, say, for a lifespan of 50 years. Um, and then after the structure, you have things like your um, facade, your skin, your systems, everything down to like the interior. And the interior is designed for, say, a five to 10 year lifespan. And what that means is you're designing for flexibility of reuse. So when the building no longer um, serves its particular function, say, um, I don't know, it used to be a school and now it needs to be a set of apartment blocks. It doesn't mean that that concrete structure needs to go because concrete can actually last for a very long time. So trying to, 
I guess, delay, if concrete does need to be used, delay its demolition for as long as possible by allowing for all of the internal elements to be as flexible as possible um, is something that we're really interested in. Yep. I think you also mentioned sort of the importance um, of having an inventory, of just really having a really sort of clear, um, comprehensive list of the materials involved so that, you know, before you even start the construction, um, so that you know what's going in before you, so you know what you need to kind of do, to, in other words, to take it apart. So essentially that's kind of folded into the design brief at the start so that you know what you're left with at the end. So it's a full kind of cycle that you're designing, not just the building, but where they what the stuff kind of comes from, how it's put together, and then how um, within that it's actually taken apart. Yeah, definitely. And, and there are systems coming up now that make concrete more modular and more deconstructible. Um, and uh, yeah, I reckon by using those, as long as you keep a good record of it so that the next person that comes along knows what they're dealing with, then it could definitely become a more circular material. Um, Melia, I was wondering if um, you could also comment on that as well. Um, what were your perspectives on, you know, for instance, what do we kind of need to deal with in relation to having, you know, the ideal scenario of having buildings that can be effectively deconstructed and, and reused in terms of their materials? I think storage, for instance, was is sort of a bit of an issue as well, if um, perhaps you'd like to comment on that. Yeah, so I guess there's something I think that we've observed happening with every time you try and move something or every time you try and inhabit something that's been used quite a lot, it, it deteriorates and it's kind of often a, a bit of a dance with entropy, sort of trying to hold something together for as long as, as, long as you need it to do, it do the thing it does. And then the process of pulling things apart, of delaminating timbers, of, of, um, of yeah, breaking things back in, into their sort of original parts in order to reuse them is, is a really um, time-consuming one. I guess just on time and, and the sort of associated costs of that, we work predominantly with uh, state and local government and I think it was interesting what you were saying before about those, those things that you don't talk about that are sort of the quietly the things that you're, you're advocating for but aren't the kind of, aren't the gems that you hand the client, they're the kind of things that you're motivated by in your own in your own way that very much relates to our work in that we will be doing a particular job through a contract with a government client and there'll be KPIs and associated um, uh, deliverables on that side but that we find the sort of the joy of that is that it enables a, an enormous amount of freedom in other ways so uh, for instance, if I come back to SiteWorks, there was um, lots of operations and, and, and programming outputs, but it also allowed us to really experiment with that building, knowing that it was going to be demolished eventually once uh, we were done with it or once the, 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 the future project was in play. So that sort of experimentation that's not directly relating to what you're, what you're doing for your client or what you're doing in relation to your, um, to your obligations, but things that you're kind of doing on the side that might take longer, that might sort of flow in and out of different projects, so almost like these kind of threads of fascination that go, that continue. And I think for us, yeah, that really is about material and it really is about revaluing materials and really understanding them. So we're very rarely kind of like, like you guys, I mean, unlike you guys, we're very rarely kind of trying to um, reuse. I think we should do more sharing within the industry um, because, I mean, you're building a catalogue and that's amazing and it's, we should all be able to sort of share with each other a bit more. I think that would probably be very valuable. I think that that's a pretty good tip, I think. <laughs> um, so I think we've reached time for the speaker's conversation, but I think it'd be great now to open up the discussion to um, the you guys in the audience. Um, so, yes, I think we've got a question over here. Can we get um, a microphone? Yeah, thanks. Hello. Hi, um, I'm Jeff Robinson. Uh, the talk's been 
absolutely fantastic, and I've really enjoyed the incredibly creative and tenacious way in which you've applied yourself to uh, reusing difficult materials. I'm, I'm really interested in how we scale this up and move it on, because this is a super interesting thing to do, but it's micro compared with the rest of the industry, and for it to be effective, we really have to kind of scale it up. And I'm really thinking about this issue, I think uh, when you were talking about the issue of 90s buildings that were ultimately um, you know, not possible to kind of take apart, I would argue that buildings that are being built in 2023 won't be much better. And I suppose my, my question is really around what's in it for a client to build a project which is easy to dismantle? Um, how is it that, you know, the, if you look at a project and you decided, okay, well, we can, you know, we can bolt it and we can do this, that, and the other, but ultimately, who does that benefit? Because if you think about it, if you're building a school or a university building or a, uh, a project and so on, and maybe that's going to hopefully last maybe 50 years or longer and longer. When it gets to be reused, you might have sold it, you might have moved on, its functionality might have changed. So what is it? What's the motivation for a, for a, uh, a client building a building in 2023 to be able to go and make that building be easily dismantled 50 years later? Um, and should there be, and I'm positing this to say that can we, if we move forward to say that you know, when it comes to that end result, um, is there a, you know, the site's worth more, the value's more because you can take it apart? Because I don't think that that is the case at the moment, that that is valued. Would anyone like to respond to that one or no pressure? Or if there's someone in the audience even that would like to respond to that one, we can, we'd love to hear your perspective as well. Um, I think um, as someone who's working with new buildings and sort of providing disassembly as a sort of upfront option and maybe one of the big things that we're really considering as a massive value piece is embodied carbon, um, which is going to be started getting monitored by the government soon. Um, so that's the carbon in your new materials that goes into your building. So um, at the moment we focus on operational carbon, so how much it takes to run your building, but when you think about your new building, it's going to become more and more focused on how you're taking things out of the earth and you're putting that into your new building. So if you are already working with something that can be disassembled and taken apart or you're reusing, you're really sort of already mitigating that new material that's going into your building. So. Sorry, I was just going to say that uh, no, I, 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 the embodied carbon argument is really, really strong at the moment. But I still think about, and, and you can argue that clients are looking for, are absolutely looking to us as designers to try and find ways to, um, you know, get concrete that's uh, low carbon concrete or low carbon steel or low carbon aluminium or make it out of wood or things like that. But actually the disassembly bit, that doesn't absolutely help the embodied carbon. It means that it could be reused later on. But when you actually put the thing together, it's potentially, it, it's either carbon neutral in terms of what one versus the other. I don't get how making it, uh, what the motivation is for somebody up front who's building a building to be able to do later on. I'd love to be able to do it. I'm not being negative against it. I'm actually trying to reach out for solutions which make it valuable that a building can be disassembled and that there is a value associated with that. 
I think it's just a long-term idea that you might not have to take things out of the earth at some point. Maybe right now with your next building, you're not quite at that yet. But if you can think maybe sort of one generation ahead, then I think then that becomes the massive benefit. Um, I think maybe with large concrete structures, it's... Um, you know, what, what one of you guys was saying was about, um, you know, the structure being able to last a lot longer because you maybe replace the insides or the outsides, you know, I think um, disassembly of things like facades or interior design, um, that is super valuable, but it might not be that you can take your, your concrete structure apart today um, and reuse it at some point. But I think, yeah, just the next generation is the sort of idea in your head to maybe think about how beneficial a disassembled building we could be. And hopefully everyone is creative and you don't have to just rebuild another big building. You can reassemble that into something smaller or housing or some you know, alternative down the line. I think, yeah, maybe it's not the mindset of right now, but if you change it, <laughs> then you've got so many opportunities. Sorry, sorry to cut in. Maybe I have like a response, probably not directly to what you're question was but I think you can never persuade someone who doesn't want to listen to you so as I think Kate was saying that you can only work clients who is willing to work with you and I think you can never kind of tell a story without showing the image that's a big thing in the design industry you can't really tell someone vision without showing them the end result. And I think that's when setting up the examples are really important, like these guys are doing, setting up the precedents and getting more people on board because of the, I think with the existing material, one of the important kind of aspect we probably didn't really touch on today is the kind of the aesthetic or the cultural value of it. Like a lot of people would have this, really strong connection whether it's emotion or that things just won't come out of the new material so those cultural or aesthetic values could really be engaged through precedents and through examples people are here today could be setting up yeah but I actually I actually think it's a really really good question because like it's not enough for us as designers to want to reuse. You have to incentivize it for the client. And there's not going to be every client out there that's going to care about the, the environment. In fact, a lot of them don't care. And one of the earlier things that we were looking into was the feasibility of everything and trying to figure out, like, for example, what is the difference in cost between um, demolishing and deconstructing? How much more expensive it is, is it to deconstruct than demolish? And at the moment, it's a lot more expensive because our infrastructure and our systems aren't set up for it. But I think that eventually, as the infrastructures start to catch up, um, they will start to balance each other out in terms of the cost of it all. And I think there is also something to be said about the flexibility that it allows the client. So, um, for a long time, architects had the standpoint of it's sustainable because it's going to last a very long time and it's going to be, be there forever. And I think that's slowly changing um, because things aren't there forever and trends change so quickly. Like from year to year, um, a kitchen can be outdated or a bathroom can be outdated. And I think that um, there is something quite noble as a designer to say that I'm going to design something for you that's going to look amazing right now, but you might want to change it in 10 years' time and I'm going to allow you to do that as well. Um, I think we've got time for one more question. I've already got the microphone. <laughs> um, yeah, I was quite interested. Um, you talked about sort of like the archiving and getting the information before we actually construct. And that's funny, I think. We already kind of do that in a way with design documentation. Like, we've already got some information. And so I'm thinking now, and it might relate to, like, how do we kind of look into the what buildings we have now? It's like, how do we look at how we archive our documentation um, or our access, what has already been documented? But how do we document it now and then archive it for future deconstruction potentially or <coughs> but then there's also 
I guess, the thought of when we, when we document it, is there another uh, layer of information capture between the documentation and the actual building? Oh, and does that align? So then can we get, can we get this really amazing kind of um, source for when we actually come to reuse it? So um, I thought, are you interested? Like, and I guess that could um, inform the cultural use as well. Like we can have it, have it. so any thoughts on how that might happen? Maybe more, like, sort of expanding on that idea a little bit of documentation being the kind of, I guess, the instruction manual of a, of a building. I've, this is maybe a little bit more of a sort of a philosophical or, a, or a, um, a, a personal idea that I have, but I believe it's really important that buildings are legible to the general public, not just to people who can read construction drawings or documentation drawings. And I imagine a time when... Is this... Yeah. I imagine a time when... when when anyone can look at a building and see potential in that building, can see that building have the possibility to become something else and it becomes less of a, of a sort of a secret language that we all hold and it becomes something of an invitation to future generations to rethink buildings, both their construction, their use, their operations, their programming. And I think separating them into different, um, you know, into, and I know this is a, a discussion about the cons construction specifically, but I think, uh, and maybe to sort of touch on the gentleman's point from before, if, if we understood buildings and if, if kids understood buildings, if kids could look at buildings like they look at Lego, I think, or, or other building blocks, that is a, an, an exciting and incredibly kind of um, imaginative world that we could live in and maybe that might inspire reuse you know maybe we can't always rely on the economic forces or or um, or, or different um, sort of I guess uh, triggers in that regard but we actually think about buildings that are legible and and easily understood by and and therefore giving agency to a public Just right do you, we have time for one more or shall we wrap up a quick one, if anyone has one. Thanks for the talks. It's been fantastic. Um, just wanted to ask if there's been any thought on um, going going from, I think, Shahi's um, idea of designing from what's available as opposed to sort of the blank canvas, um, if there's been any thoughts on um, being able to create a repository of demolished products so you've got like a, I don't know a Bunnings of a Bunnings of 600 by 600 pavers or 1200 by 1200 or you've got round round slices of columns or something like that, and so you've got this big massive warehouse out in the sticks that becomes so that becomes a place that creates value for those products. So the people demolishing it actually either you know sell it to the warehouse, the Bunnings, <laughs> and then the people buying it then buy it from them, and there's then there's value. Is there any, has there been any thought given to any of those kinds of concepts out, out there? I mean, heaps of them exist. So there's, there's um, building material resellers all over. Well, I'm, I'm from Sydney, but I assume that there's some in Melbourne too. Um, and there used to be a lot more of them. I think in the last maybe 10, 15 years, a lot of them have started to shut down just because... Um, yes. <laughs> Because it all went online. And now, <laughs> to be honest, we buy from Gumtree and Marketplace all the time. And, yeah, and, and the, at the beginning, it was a bit of a, a weird thing to try and approach a client and be like, are you okay with us getting your basin from Marketplace? Yeah. But, no, <laughs> um, because it just, it, it, it has these connotations of being secondhand and not as good and something wrong with it. And it's not the case. And a lot of the time, there are a lot of builders that really use um, Gumtree and Marketplace to sell a lot of their things. What, what we found, and it's kind of come full circle. So we started second edition with the intention of, practicing deconstruction and not really designing too much. We just wanted to go take buildings apart, see what materials had value, what materials didn't, how much we can divert. Um, and then we realized that there's not a lot of demand for materials um, and they don't have a lot of value because not a lot of people are designing with them, which is why we started 
to design with them because we thought, well, maybe if we start to design with them, then other people will start to design with them and that will create more value, which will mean more people will deconstruct. So it's all kind of interconnected in that sense. And I think that the more we design with reuse materials, the more value they'll have and yeah, the more lucrative Facebook will get. is quite the same as that and has like people who do demolition in our landscape jobs, when they demolish, they sell that material back to the tip and then that probably gets bought and used by the manufacturers that are making our products that we then specify. So I guess it's probably about being non more knowledgeable and maybe getting a bit more dirty and not being, I guess, design having maybe less ego in that and that we just connect with those things and maybe cut out or not so much cut out, but not be afraid to fill in those blanks for ourselves as opposed to um, asking somebody else to do it for us. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. What do you think? Okay, so I think we've hit time. Um, but thanks so much to our speakers um, tonight. It would be great if we could thank them with a round of applause. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. <laughs>